Um, you guys, um, if, you, if you haven't been with us before, you haven't seen a, a baby dedication, it is, it's such an honor to be able to see that. It's one of the, the cool things that across the Mariners campuses that we do, which is to say, um, we put our kids in front of our community and say, it's about us raising these kids together. And it's a powerful community moment for me. Um, I've always appreciated that we've done, even um, at you know, the auxiliary campus at Irvine, the, the overflow campus at Irvine. Uh, even at that massive campus, they still have that moment. There's still that moment where they pull families up on stage and say, it's us raising these kids together in this community. And so um, it's always a powerful moment for me. My, my own, so my youngest son was dedicated actually here when I was speaking a lot. I, it was last summer, I think I was speaking a lot and so um, before, before I became the lead pastor. But I was here a lot and I was like, my four-year-old, we kind of neglected having him, you know, get all the dedication. So we're like, we better do it now. You know, he's going to be 15 by the time we finish this thing. You know, like, and here's our son. We hope one day he'll be, you know. Um, so anyway, very cool. If you haven't yet done that, you have questions, I'd encourage you to ask our children's ministry about that. Uh, but it is good to be with you guys. Um, as Becky said, my name is Jeff, and um, this is, um, this is it's, I'm really excited about the series we have going. Uh, the series we're in is, uh, it's just cleverly enough, called The Bible. <laughs> uh, and it basically, if you were, haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this, uh, the, sort of the phenomenon that sort of sparked this idea was, uh, that Mark Burnett did a series, the guy who produces uh, Survivor and The Voice, did a series called The Bible on the History Channel, and 100 million people watched it. It was a worldwide phenomenon, and clearly people are still asking the question, you know, what's in the Bible, and does it matter, is it relevant, is it true? These are all questions people are asking about, and so we're looking at it over the past uh, couple of weeks. There's a couple more weeks left in the series, but um, last week was a really a real highlight in the series for me, as we took a a look at something that's kind of got a bad name in a lot of Christian circles, which is healing. We took a look at healing, and, you know, we looked at Jesus' ministry as it pertains to healing, and we asked people, you know, we tried to really kind of go, okay, healing's got a bad rap. It's been used to manipulate and cause all kinds of controversy, but we believe that God is a healing God, and we have people come forward to receive prayers for healing of all kinds. And here's just to give you a sense. As we talked to our prayer teams, over and over again, there was a huge amount of gratitude um, by the people that came forward to say, thank you that you would do this. And there's a lot of people who had needs that just had gotten bad diagnoses from doctors. There are people who had pain, ail- physical ailments. We got some emails from people who said that they're, you know, they've, they've tried everything and the pain is dissipating. That they never. And then we talked to a lot of people, or we talked to a lot of the prayer team, and said there's a number of people that came forward whose marriages are really, really struggling. And, you know, I just want you to know that the, 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 the beautiful picture in, that, in all of that suffering is that, that there was also a prayer. There's, we, we saw our own people meeting that um, with God. And we got to see some next steps being taken and people being helped. And we know God, like we said last week, doesn't do everything in an instant. Sometimes he heals by degrees, and sometimes he doesn't answer the way at all that we would like. And we don't have good answers for that, but we know that we can go to him in prayer. And um, that's part of the ministry we want to continue to have at our church. I just want to give you an update. It was beautiful. There was, uh, one way I described to some people is like, you know, no one here, is, no one here has got their act all together. No one here is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So our prayer team of broken people was praying for our, our church of broken people, and it was beautiful to see God at work. And so, very, very cool. And um, then we got to be together at a beach day, very fun stuff, and um, kind of a two great symbols of community, hurting together and then playing together. I felt like, okay, this is what church is about. Um, but it is, I'm super excited about today as we continue in our series. Before we jump in, let's do this. Why don't we pray together, and, uh, and we'll let God kind of speak to us a little bit before we, we begin. So, let's pray. Father, as we gather and as we've seen over the past couple of weeks in the series, we've seen you at work in powerful ways. We've seen you and asked you to be present in ways that are maybe difficult or different for us. We've seen you, Father, um, show up in powerful ways that we did not even realize were possible sometimes. 
Father, today as we, um, as, we, as we meet you here, as we meet each other here, we seek you. We want you. It's our hope for a lot of us, Father, who are wandering in here, who aren't too sure about who you are, that we would find you. Father, a lot of us are lost and are searching and looking to find you. Some of us we know, God, have walked in here on their last leg. That some of us are walking in here alone, tired, lost, lonely, afraid. And Jesus, we pray that amid all of the exterior stuff we put on to mask all of those things, that you would unravel it and that you would meet us. So Jesus, as we just for a moment would pause, that amid all of the noise of our life, there might be a few moments that we might just stop and to hear from you, that we wouldn't try to produce any words or create anything, but Father, we would hear from you. So God, would you speak to us in the silence of just a few moments, we might hear from your voice. Jesus, we pray as we gather today that we would hear from you, that we would seek you, and that we would find you. It is in your name we pray, Father. Amen. Uh, If you want to pull out your outline or you want to pull out your Bible, we'll be kind of jumping around a little bit. We'll be in Mark 14 and John 18, if that makes any difference to you as well. We'll be, all the stuff will be on the screen, Uh, but if you want to pull that out, get, get that stuff ready. Let me ask you, as you guys are doing that, this is a really difficult question, but I want to see if we can get some participation. If we can't, then I will not use this for the 11 o'clock service. All right? Uh, so let me ask you really quickly, and just, you know, there's no right answer necessarily. Just, you know, take your sh- best shot at it. Let me ask you, what do people want? One, just one word. Throw something out. What? Money. There's a lot of agreement about money. Yep. All, what's that? Peace. What else do people want? Love. To belong. What else? Careful how you said that. So you said success, but that was a little, that came out a little funky there at first. Yeah, didn't it? But, you know, yeah. Okay, good. What else? Yep. What else? Happiness. What else? What do people want? What's that? Who said something? Acceptance. Good. What? Affirmation. Good. You guys should get together. Affirmation, acceptance, success. Careful. Yeah, good. What else? Anybody? Health. Someone said sleep. Yeah. That's the parent of a very young child, I'm certain. It's the only thing I want. I'll, you can take away everything else. Just give me four straight hours uninterrupted. Four hours, that's all I'm asking. Okay, what else? Someone say passion? Passion. They want passion? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, okay, good. Success. Okay, good, what else? What power? Good. What else? What? Love, yes, love, joy. Now we're starting to list the fruits of the Spirit, those of you who grew up in the church. Patience and kindness and goodness. They want gentleness. Yeah, sure they do. Control, that sounds a little more, yes, control, definitely. Anything else? Anybody feel like they've got the one nobody else has said yet? Inner peace, peace. yes. Outer peace, don't care. Inner peace. (laughs) world can fall apart, but I want inner peace. Well, we live in a world where, um, we live in a world that, that tells us in some way or another, and I, I've mentioned this before, when we talk about the, the Western world in particular, 
You know, we're li- in the West, we're born um, with certain rights. We're born with our expectation that we would have rights. In the rest of the world, you're born with obligations more before you're born with rights. And in the West, when you're born with rights, one of the rights that we believe we're sort of told, at least I should say this, the way that we're told is what you want isn't something that you just want. It's an ought. It's a right. You ought to have it. These are things that sort of make us who we are, in fact. Our ability, in some ways, to obtain our desires forms our identity in a lot of ways, for a lot of the way people look at us. What we want, often what we think about, and some of you have some very deep spiritual sort of answers, Jesus-y answers, some of you very practical with sleep. But there is this sense that says, what we want actually creates a little bit of who we are, and there are things that we feel like we're entitled to. You see this a lot in marriage and dating, why sort of marriages and dating have like difficult issues because everyone believes in a marriage or a dating relationship that the other person is there to fulfill all of their, the other person's deepest desires. Like you're here in my life to meet all of my needs and wants and desires. And when you don't, there's something wrong with you. That's sort of the issue we have in our lives. And this is the way people see Jesus. That people are attracted to, we look at the Bible, people are attracted to or repulsed by Jesus because he is or is not able, because of his perceived ability, to grant us our wants, our desires. And so what happens when this sort of occurs is that we create a kind of Jesus myth. That there's this Jesus who's a little bit kind of like Superman with like a Barry Gibb haircut and a beard. And he's kind of floating a little bit above the earth. With, and he's kind of got these superpowers when we need him. He's kind of part of our group of friends. And when we need him to kind of invoke his superpowers, we're like, Jesus, go ahead and handle this, please. And then he's also got access to all of his father's stuff. And we want all that stuff. And there's a part of us that says, man, this is all that we need. We like Jesus because he can give to us everything that we want. All of it. Now, if that's all Jesus is, if the Bible culminates with the person of Jesus who is more or less kind of a Superman slash genie, then maybe he's a little safe. And Jesus is asking very, very little of us, and he's he's here simply to give us what we want, then essentially what we're looking for in Jesus is God crafted in our own image. The Bible asks the question over and over again, Not only what do you want, but who is it that you want? Who is it that you want? We talk about Jesus. Who is it that you want? And and maybe, you know, maybe we're, we're, you know, what we think is that isn't Jesus, you know, as we look at this, maybe as we think today, Jesus isn't all of what we want him to be, and he intends to give us something different than what we would want, because he's not crafted in our own image. Last week we took a look at Jesus' ministry and his life. What characterized Jesus' life and ministry was this this dedication to talking about this thing called the kingdom of God and and embodying it in, at least in one way, this sort of miracles and healings we talked about. And we saw it unfold last week a little bit in in our own presence. And then as Jesus' life culminates, it culminates pointing to this moment where he goes to the cross. In his last days, as we watch Jesus, his last days tell us something about him. And it it tells us something also about us, about our desires and what God wants to do. So as Jesus enters his final weeks, his final week of life on ministry, 
he has this triumphal entry. This is what we call Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. He has this confrontation, this issue. He has the couple people in the temple. Famously, you remember this, some of this, you've heard of this before. He has a last supper with his disciples. And then he has, throughout the background of it all, he has this awareness of the cross that's coming, that's just coming to bear on his own life. So he's walking in, there's the palm trees, there's a confrontation, there's the last supper. And the whole time he knows, he's told his disciples over and over again, you know, the son of man, meaning Jesus, is going to be lifted up on a cross. I'm going to die. And he knows that the whole time. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, about that cross. Here's what he says. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter James along with him, and he began, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Let me stop right here. Up to that point in the Bible, Jesus is talking about the cross. It's kind of like pretty flat emotionally. Hey, and by the way, I'm going to be going to the cross. And the disciples are like, you know, we don't really get it, but that's okay. And, you know, you won't understand, but I'm going to the cross. And now he gets to this place. It's the night of his arrest. He's about to be turned over to the authorities. And he isn't just kind of going, hey, guys, I got to go. Been great. <laughs> Food was delicious. I'm out. It says about Jesus looking into the specter of the cross, he says, or the Bible says, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. That's one word, deeply distressed and troubled is one word in the Greek. And it's a word that means that there's this, uh, it, it, it literally translates to throw into terror. This, this expression is used only four times, it's used four times in the New Testament, all of them by, by Mark. And it is this really, it's not just like, man, I'm kind of bummed about this. It has this sense of being shocked about what's about to happen. Jesus, looking at the cross, doesn't seem to think about, this is just kind of, just kind of what I do. Verse 34 says this. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. He tells the three guys that are with him. He's dropped off a couple. He's nine guys, or I guess at this point it would be eight guys. Uh, they're back uh, doing their own thing. And then he takes three guys with him, and he says, hey, you guys, just sit here with me. What I'm wrestling with is so incredibly painful. It's so incredibly dark. I'm so scared. I just need you guys to sit with me because I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. I just need you guys to be with me. I'm hurting. I'm alone, and I'm scared, and I need you to be with me. Now, these guys famously fall asleep like three times in a row on Jesus. Because I don't think they get it. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell down to the ground and prayed as it, uh, that if possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour is just an expression Jesus uses often to describe the hour of his death. The hour is a way of saying, there's this time coming. God, is there any way that this thing that's in front of me, that's been in front of me in my whole ministry, would go away? I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm deeply troubled and distressed. Which means this, Jesus, the Jesus, is not getting what he wants. He's asking his own father, God, if there's any other way, please, if there's any other way, would you give me that way? Because I don't want this. I don't want what's right in front of me. And Jesus is not getting what he desires. 
and his own ministry and his own life to us and all this stuff isn't simply about wish fulfillment. It can't be. Because if that was the case, then Jesus himself would be able to have had something other than his own. He would, he would choose something other than the cross. But he looks at God and says, is there any other way? I don't want this. I'm deeply troubled. I'm alone. I need these guys around me. He looks at the cross and it grieves him deeply. There's a phrase. If you grew up, if you grew up in the church... And not everybody, I realize this is like, you'd have to be kind of an insider in church. Some of you will get this. Some of you, you want to just, I'll let you in on a secret. Those of you who are like checking church out, or you maybe just, you, they'll just give you a lesson in what we would call Christianese. Like this is the word Christians use that you have to kind of know how to speak church world to understand this. But there's this phrase people in the church use all the time. And it's very funny. And I think it's probably used only once in a while to like actually have real significance. It's this phrase right here. Some of you have heard this before. And some of you have used it. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit on it. It's the phrase, I, I don't have a piece about that. You guys ever heard this expression? It's like, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I really felt like I was supposed to call my friend and, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, work out some of our, our issues, but I don't have a piece about that. You know, like this kind of thing. Or, or I felt like I, I should have handled that situation at work, you know, whatever, but I don't have a piece about that or whatever. It just kind of becomes an excuse for, I don't feel really comfortable, so I'm not doing it. You know, like imagine if your own kid said that to you. I need you to clean your room. I'd like to, but I just, I don't have a piece about that. <laughs> God, God would give me a piece. I would do that. Now, I want you to get this expression. People have used this expression. How many of you have heard this expression before? Church people have heard this expression. You know, I don't have a piece about that. Yeah, I'd raise my hand, but I don't have a piece about that. Right. Now, <laughs> the expression here, I don't have a piece about that. I just want you to catch this. Now, I'm sure there are times where that's appropriate to be used. I don't just want to go on a, like, now we complete police each other about, you just said that phrase, you said that's, that's not it. But just get what I'm saying. I'm sure there are times where that's appropriate to use that phrase. But I want you to look at Jesus, who is looking at the cross. Clearly, he does not have a peace about that. Luke has the version of Jesus praying in such a way that he's crying so deeply that, and crying with such, such intensity that the, the, the tears are as drops of blood. There is a deep grief about this that he doesn't have a peace about. Turn to John chapter 18 if you have your Bible and then we'll take a look on the screen as well. This is John's account of the same event. John 18 verse 2 says this, Now Judas... Who betrayed him knew the place. They are, oh, sorry, they're, they go, they're going into the garden, and there's, uh, there's Jesus there. Now, Jesus, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now this is the place, meaning, where, where Judas knows Jesus is going to be. He knows he's going to pray there. He also knows that this is a place where Jesus is. This isn't like Jesus' first time in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not like, wow, there's a garden. I think I should go there and pray. I mean, he's been there a lot of times. Clearly there's been some instruction that the disciples have had with Jesus. It's been a place that's been, for lack of a better term, it's been kind of sacred to them. It's been kind of their own little, you know, we're going to have our teaching here. We're going to be at this place in Gethsemane. We're going to talk, and there'll be the olive trees, and we'll learn, and what Jesus will teach to us about what it means to be his own apprentice, to follow him, to walk in his footsteps. And when, the, when Judas is looking to find Jesus, he knows he's going to be in the place where Jesus had spent time with Judas himself, you know, investing in and pouring into him, and he finds him there, which makes the betrayal even all the more painful verse 3 so Judas came into the garden 
guarding a de- or guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, so here comes Judas, and he's got some religious leaders, and he's got some soldiers, and they're armed. And in the other, in the other versions of the story, you ha- in the other Gospels, you have Jesus kind of going, have you guys not heard of me? Like, I've been in the temple teaching. I'm not, I don't have weapons. There's no military behind me. But, you know, like, did you guys really think I was going to start a fight? Like, okay, now it's on. You know, like, did you guys not know this? I'm, Je- I'm just, I'm Jesus. You don't need everybody here kind of coming to get me like this. Verse, f- verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Now, this means he knows what's going to happen to him in terms of his arrest, and he's fully aware of the cross before him, which he has said in the book of Mark. Mark captures it. If there's any other way, could we find another way? Knowing all that was going to happen to him, the pain, the humiliation, and everything else that's about to happen, uh, uh, he says, he went out and asked them, these guards and these religious leaders, who... Is it you want? Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. I think it's incredibly peculiar that the question that's being asked here is who is it you want? Jesus asked these guys, these armed guards, the religious leaders, and his own betrayer, who is it you want? Who is it you want? Now, just pause just for a moment. I think, I was looking at my own life, just wrestling with this idea a little bit. (laughs) Who is it? I'm imagining myself walking in the garden and having Jesus then say to me, who is it you want? You know who I kind of want? I realize it's embarrassing, but this is the best example I can think of. You know who I want? I want, I want Jesus to be like Julie McCoy from The Love Boat. Just walking, she's the cruise director, for those of you guys who don't remember Love Boat. She's the one who just makes sure everybody's having a really good time. You know, anything else you guys need? We have all kinds of activities and fun stuff happening on whatever deck and whatever thing's going on. We have this, you know, celebrity from the 70s who's going to show up here and he's going to, you know, like, I want that from Jesus. I want him to look at me and go, can I refill your drink? Is there anything else I can give for you? Do you need to, you know, do you want to set you up with a little wind sailor or your windsurfing expedition? Or do you, I mean, like, I want that. I want him to ask me if everything's going to be okay, if I have everything I need. You okay? Everything, can I get anything you need? I want that. Who is it you want? I, I was thinking about the other way I kind of want. Uh, you know, I don't, they don't have this as much as they used to because of the, the, the rule. I don't know. I don't follow hockey that much. But in the old, the old school version of hockey was that there, every team had at least one player who they just called the goon. Right? And some of you guys know this. And the goon was like, this is the guy who just went out there and tried to pick fights with the other team. Like, that's all their job was. Like, if, the, if their team was kind of getting a little rough with the star player on your team, then the goon went out there for his shift and just punched the lights out of some dude. Like, that was it. And I kind of want that with Jesus. You know, like, hey, they're kind of harassing me. Go get them. You know, just do something. Zap them or whatever you do. Be the goon squad. Get out there and just punch a guy in the face. That's what I want. Who is it you want? Sometimes I look at Jesus and I go, I want you to lighten up a little bit. You know what I mean? What's a big deal? How serious is it, really? Who is it? You want. Who is it you want? 
And here's a picture of these people who have come to take Jesus, to control him, to capture him, to put him in their own little version of what they want him to be like, to manipulate him, to overpower him. And he asked them, who is it you want? Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Jesus, was sta- Jesus the traitor was standing with them. When he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Now you have to imagine, it's a little bit comedic. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. And then it says that as he says, I am he, the whole group of the people just topple over. Like, we're all here for Jesus. I'm he. They just fall. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. Is it something happened? But here's what you get. The sense from what the subtlety here is this. That in the presence of God, people would be knocked over. That there's this really great, powerful sense of irony here, which these people are, Jesus is asking him, what is it, or who is it that you want? And they say the answer, their soul's deepest need. Jesus of Nazareth. And they get knocked over. I'm he. John uses, uh, John has Jesus saying, I am he, three times in this passage. The phrase I am comes up a lot in John's gospel. It's a phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself a number of times as John records Jesus' life and ministry. Just to, to make a note, here's a couple of things Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am teacher, and I am Lord. I am. Now, all of those I am statements give you a picture of how Jesus self-identified, how he thought of himself. And in none of those things does he say, you know who I am? I'm here to grant your every single desire. Now, it is true that God wants to give good gifts to us, doesn't mean that he doesn't want to give to us our desires, but his primary ministry is not to give to us what we want. Do you want that? The other way to look at I am is this. The word I am is of a particular significance to the Jewish community, the Hebrew community. Because the word I am is the way God self-reveals to Moses when Moses asked him, well, who do I tell everybody that sent me when I'm going up against the Pharaoh and all that other stuff? And God says, just tell him I am has sent you. I am. Very clearly, you have got, John is pointing to the reality of Jesus as being something more than just sort of a, a teacher or a guy who says some nice things and talks about the poor nicely. All of this is pointing to God being in this garden at this moment. And these guys, when they hear, I am, they get knocked over. And he asks them again, perhaps they're still on the ground. Who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. I know you came for, just, you, don't need, you can let everybody else go. Just come take me. No one's going to fight you. John's gospel has this account of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's full of these allusions. Back to the way God intended things to be back at the beginning of all things. It starts, John's gospel even starts at the beginning of this idea of in the beginning was this, the word. 
And now you have this picture here. You have an allusion back to the original garden of Eden. In, in Genesis chapter 3, you have a sinful man in the garden and God coming to look for him, saying to Adam, where are you, Adam? Genesis 3. And now you have the opposite. You have God in the garden and sinful man coming to look for him. Who is it you want? And then you have this moment. Kind of surprising. John 18, verse 10 says this. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I just don't know why they even include his name. Like, I don't know why. I always, I'd always, I always thought that was funny. Like, well, we just want you to know who. If you're looking for a guy who doesn't have an ear, Malchus is your guy. Anyway, verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup, meaning cup of suffering, that the Father has given me? Now, here's what's happening. The question I've always wondered why in the world does Peter have a sword? Like, did Jesus, you know, like, there's, they're having their last supper, and then they're going to go do this thing? And you have to ask that question. Why does, why does Peter have a sword and intend to, to cut someone's ear off? I mean, really, is this, is this, does Peter have terrible swordsmanship, too, by the way? Like, I'm coming after you. Oh, my, my ear, you know. Can you, on my heart, just stab me right there and end it. You know, like, why'd you cut my ear off? But he had, there's Peter, who's clearly not really good at wielding a sword. And Jesus looks at him and goes, knock it off. That's not what we're doing here. It, Luke's, Luke has the version where he, Jesus is like, knock it off, Peter. And then he heals, the, he heals Malchus's ear. You know, we don't have that scenario here. We just have that his ear got cut off. But Luke has a version where it's like, you're an idiot. Whatever, whatever Jesus does. And the ear comes back, forms together. And it's like, whoa, you know. Okay, now you guys can arrest me. You know, like, it's a little bit more powerful in that moment. But you have this question. Why does Peter get all wound up and do this? Because Peter isn't all that different than those, than those guards and those religious leaders who are trying to take Jesus. Because what he wants to do is he wants Jesus to do something for him. He can't bear the thought of Jesus operating in such a way that, you know, he would do something that Peter doesn't want. Really, Jesus? You're just going to go with these guys? I can't, I can't let that happen. I can't let you do what you don't want to do and what I don't want you to do. And Jesus says, am I not going to do what God has asked, what the Father has asked me to do, in this, to drink this cup of suffering? I got to do it. It doesn't even matter whether I want it or not. It doesn't matter if it's like easy or hard or if it's something I feel like is I have a peace about or not or whether it's part of my identity or not. I'm just doing it because that's what I'm called to do and you don't get to decide. It's not up to you, Peter. John 6, Jesus says this, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. And to jump back to Mark, you have this you have, this, you have the, the clearest version of what Jesus is intending here with Peter. He says this, Abba, Father, this is Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. He talks to his father in the most endearing, intimate terms, and he says, take this cup from me. I don't want this. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
If there's any way you could take this thing from me, I want you to take it from me because I don't want it. I don't have it. It doesn't feel good. In fact, not only does it not only feel good, my soul is distressed to the point of death. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. Can you take this away from me? And, but not what I want, what you want. There's a writer who has this, uh, he, he makes this really, you know, his, his sort of analysis of Jesus is interesting. He says, what, what, if you would ask anybody, and this would include me, if you'd ask anybody about what, what characterized Jesus more than anything else, most all of us would say probably love. And he says what actually characterizes Jesus more deeply than anything else, this is debatable, but I, he raises a good point, is his obedience. Throughout the life and story of Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, you see him constantly going, I'm doing what my father sent me to do. I am intending to live out this kingdom of God kind of stuff. And I don't, you know what? I don't know that I like it all the time, but I'm doing it. I don't want to do this, but I'll do it because you've called me to it. Verse 12 in John 18. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They arrest Jesus with with their intent to kill him. Jesus knows he's going to die. He has this powerful statement, which is not what I want, but what you want. Now, we are people who long for Jesus to give to us what we want. We believe, if you're anything like me, we believe at some point or another that if we want it long enough, it becomes our own right to have it. Do you want Jesus who isn't as preoccupied with giving to us every single thing we ever could want? Do you still want him? Do you still want God who walked in flesh among us and who still is at work in us, whose ministry isn't primarily about fulfilling all of our wishes? That is a very difficult challenge. Do you want God who says, you know, I want these things from you, and we don't get to kind of choose like, well, we, I like that, and I like, we have to just go, okay, as much as I can understand, I just want you. Who is it you want? Who is it you want? The essence of Scripture and all of what we talk about in terms of God's kingdom as, as it comes forward and it being made manifest in Jesus is this question, who is it do you want? Do you want a God shaped in your own image? Or do you want Jesus as he is, who says things like, I want you to be like me, and I say things like, not my will, but your will. Now, we're going to have a chance to respond. And I want you to think about this. We're going to take communion in a little bit. And communion is, in so many words, is just simply a symbol, a reminder of who Jesus actually is. Next week we're going to talk about the cross in more detail, but I just want you to capture the sense, when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder that points us to who God is. And do you want him? Do you want him? Some of you, I realize, are like, I'm not sure if I want him yet. I've been coming here for a couple weeks, but I'm not totally sure if I want Jesus. Yeah, and I understand that. But communion says, I remember all of what you would give to me, what your own obedience led you into, into the cross. I remember, Jesus, that this isn't just merely about my own desire, my own wants. It's about me following a God who would ask of me all of my life. It's about coming and saying, Jesus, 
These are the things in my life that are not totally dead on, right on, that I need a little help with. Some of these things I need a lot of help with. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. So we remember today. Jesus, who says, who is it you want? Who is it that you want? And here's what we're going to do. When we take communion, we're going to have it, we're going to have it done a little differently than we, we've done in the past. You've been with us before. Some people are going to serve it to you. Someone will hold the bread, just this, the, little, the little tray of bread. And you will walk up and they will say, this is the body of Christ. And you can take it. And then the other person will hold the cup. And you just, if, you, you know, if you're unfamiliar with our tradition, you just dip it. Some of you are from different traditions. Just take the bread and dip it into the cup. I, I was told last week by a really smart college student, they go, that's actually the term for that is the term intinction. So now you know that word too, all right? So I don't know what the present verb tense of that is, intinct, in I guess. I don't know what it would be. Uh, but you're going to dip the bread into the cup, and that person will say, this is Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Now here's, you're going to look at them, and you're not going to know what to say. You're going to look at them and think, thank you, or yes, or whatever. So here's what you say. Amen. Amen is like, all that it means is truly, verily, super yes. You know, that's what it means. So that's all you're saying. The body of, this is the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Yes. This is who I want. At the same time, we're also going to have our prayer wall up in front. We're going to bring it up a little closer. Some of you need to write some things down. There are, there are places to write some stuff down. You might want to write a prayer. Maybe some of you have needs for healing that you didn't get a chance, that you had to go yes, last week. You couldn't. We'll have people that would love to pray with you. But we have plenty of time to respond. We have built this space into here. So here's the only thing I'd ask. Don't take your communion and like, you know, high five someone and leave. I mean, be here with us. Conclude the service. Wait till the benediction. But there's plenty of time for us to respond together. So I want you to do this. Would you close your eyes? Just for a moment, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you, knowing that if we're really, really, really honest, more often than not, we're longing to find you who is essentially a God crafted in our own image. And Father, it's, it's us today as we look into, the, into your own ministry and life in the final week of your your ministry, in which we see that you look at the cross and say, well, it's not what I want, but it's what my Father wants, and I choose that. Father, we get a sense of conviction about obedience. We get a sense of your own dedication to what it would be like to rescue the world upon yourself, to take sin upon yourself and the weight and the burden that it must be to do that. And so, Father, we're grateful. Jesus, as we respond, would you give us the freedom to write down the things that ought to be prayed for, that need to be placed into the prayer wall, to receive communion as people who would say, I want you, Jesus. And for some of us, Father, for maybe for the first time we go, I'm glad he's not crafted in my own image. 
I'm glad Jesus isn't the one who looks just like me. And maybe for some of us, we say for the very first time in our lives, I don't want Jesus and. I don't want Jesus in something else. I just want you. So, Father, maybe for the first time, some of us say, I want Jesus. And I'll remember what he gave and who he is in communion today. So, Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen.